Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT show. My name is John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next 60 exciting minutes. Now, as always, we bring notice of another great day for British democracy. You may or may not be familiar with UPIC. What is UPIC? Some of you may be asking. Well, UPIC stands for the Union Policy Implementation Committee, which is headed up by Michael Gove. It is working feverishly to recruit additional people. Uh, they don't need to have any knowledge of Scotland, though it might be desirable. So those of you out there struggling with the pandemic might see a whole new future for yourselves. Uh, you can apply now to the cabinet office. And again, you don't have to need to have much knowledge about Scotland or Northern Ireland or Wales for that matter. UPIC has already been flying a few kites. This will give you some sort of flavor of the intellectual prowess behind this activity. One of the kites that's been flown is uh, that Prince Edward ought to move to Edinburgh. As you might imagine, this has been treated with almost universal acclaim. Uh, the, the second notion, and this is for real, for sure, every license plate in future will have to carry a union flag. Now remember, all of this effort, all of this work, uh, all of the taxpayers' money, uh, is being used to win a referendum uh, that the Prime Minister has told us categorically is not going to happen. You need to figure that one out, folks. Thanks for joining us this evening. We have yet another great guest, and I'm really, really excited that she's able to join us this evening. Tonight, the TNT show welcomes Cathy McCulloch, who's co-director of the Children's Parliament. What is the Children's Parliament? Cathy's going to tell us all about it, and much more besides. She'll be telling us about the year of the child. Uh, now, if you believe, like most of us do, that our children are our future, then you really want to hear what Cathy has to say tonight. So the nation talks, and you are the folks who provide some of the questions. So in many respects, this is, this is your show. Now to our guest tonight, Cathy McCulloch. Cathy, how are you coping with the pandemic? Uh, well, hi, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, a game of two halves, I think. The um, Socially, I'm quite enjoying just the pause from being a hundred different places at once and uh, keeping in touch with friends online is working okay for me. Work-wise, work it's challenging. Keeping in touch with children remotely, making sure it's working for them, that it's fun, that it's, um, yeah, there's not too much screen time. So, yeah, game of two halves, I would say. Right, right. And uh, tell us about yourself. Tell us about Cathy McCullough. Uh, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Uh, have you moved around at all? I mean, what, who is Cathy McCullough? Where have you been? Uh, yeah, I'm a mixture. I'm a real a composite of different places. I was born in Bermuda because my mum and dad met out there. Um, both of them having randomly arrived without having really put any thought of planning into it. But when my dad was in the police force, but when I was about six months old, we, um, my dad had bad asthma and he also felt quite uncomfortable about the tensions between black community and the white, mostly white police force. Um, and so we relocated back to East Kilbride, where my paternal grandparents lived. And uh, East Kilbride was a great place to grow up, lots of freedom, everything smelled of tar. Uh, and uh, it was great. I really liked it. I had good, good teachers. Um, and then in four, when I was 14, no, yeah, when I was 14, my dad got a new job in Aberfeldy 
and um, we moved up to Aberfeldy and that was just like an awakening for me. Absolutely loved everything about it. Loved the, I got involved with sheep farming and deer, deer farms and Gaelic choir and I just, it was perfect for me. I felt like I'd arrived where I was meant to be. But these must have been quite significant leaps because Bermuda is Bermuda. It doesn't look terribly like East Cobride. No, no disrespect to East Cobride or to Bermuda <laughs> for that matter. But they no, don't. no, quite. And actually, on our in our photograph album, you know, you're looking through the photograph album, and there are photographs of my mum in pretty dresses, my dad in his shorts, and on the beach, and it's just beautiful and gorgeous, and oleander and blue skies and blue water. And when you turn the page in the photo album, it's just grey. From there, from there on, and that's the colour photographs. And it was just grey, but it's, it was interesting. I'm glad we moved. You know, my life would have been very, very different had we stayed in Bermuda, but um, I wouldn't change where, where I've been and what I've been, what I've done. Yeah, and then you find yourself moving from East Kilbride to what Aberfeldy, did you say? Aberfeldy, yeah. That's yeah. another fairly significant. Move. It was amazing. Absolutely loved it, and. Uh, just the relationship that you had with people and with teachers actually was different because you knew that your your dad might meet your PE teacher or your biology teacher in the pub and uh, yeah things were much closer to home and there was much more of a network uh, and I loved that everybody knew everybody it, it just felt great we did operas and operettas and yeah I just felt really engaged it felt like a proper community. I mean, that sounds to me like you're a fairly open person because yeah. you find that anathema. You know, the fact that everyone knew your business. That, <laughs> I mean, you know, for some people, that's just hell. Yeah. You know, that old saying, hell is other people. But you know, you know what I mean? Some people are like that, whereas you seem to be almost exactly diametrically opposite to that. I had nothing to hide. <laughs> I was quite happy for people to know what I was doing because I was just, I, I discovered the young farmer. Well, I, mean, I don't know if I'd want everybody to know everything that we got up to in the young farmers. But uh, yeah, no, I just found my niche there. Yeah. Worked for me. Yeah. So how long did you stay in Aberfeldy? I was there for about five years and then I went travelling and worked away and then came back and lived in Highland Pearson again for a year before moving to Edinburgh um, right. when I was about 29. So I've been here for 30, over 30 years. So when you were travelling, where did you go typically? Um, I lived in Belgium for a year, travelled to Sweden, the States. Um, my husband and I travelled to India and Thailand. Um, yeah. It was great. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of India? L absolutely loved it. An assault on all the senses is what they <laughs> is how they describe it, and that was certainly how we experienced it. And it was good because we were on a budget. I mean, we had twenty rupees a day, which at that time was about a pound a day. And Ooh. I used to spend my money on my breakfast and my lunch, and my husband didn't have any breakfast and lunch, so he would sit down to this banquet every evening, and I would be sitting there with a bowl of rice or something. Yeah, that led to one big falling out. But apart from that, we managed really well. <laughs> I remember going to India and arriving, uh, I think just before or just after Christmas, uh, to find out that New Delhi was freezing cold. I, I, I got this notion in my head that India was hot. You know, that the, the, you know, the colonialists would um, depart from the hills during the, the hot season because it was so unbearable. Uh, but up in, the, up in the hills, it was a lot cooler, of course. Uh, and they got up to all sorts of shenanigans up there. Uh, unaccompanied, but that you know that the that was my sense of India, but to arrive there, uh, you know, in, in the winter time, it was cold, it was chilly, uh, and in fact, we, we we managed to get a taxi, and uh, it was a pretty dilapidated thing, 
uh, you'll recognise all this. I think it was called a, a, we called it here a Morris Oxford. I think it was, it was pretty high. Well, it wasn't quite a tuk-tuk. It was a, like a, a regular uh, car, but it was, it was like a sort of elongated Morris minor, really. Uh, and uh, the, the guy had his, in an associate, the, the driver didn't go and accompany the associate. And the associate's job, because it was misty and cold, was that because the windscreen wipers didn't work, his, his companion's job was to lean out the window <laughs> and operate the windscreen wipers. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> Mind you... You know, yep. mind you, you don't have to go very far to get that kind of experience. I used to, I worked up in the Western Isles for a while and we hired a car, hired a car in Barra. And when I took it back, the guy said, everything all right? And I said, yeah, well, this didn't work and the, the speedometer doesn't work and something. And he just said, "Ugh, it's a Peugeot. <laughs> and that was it. So it's not just India that has little idiosyncrasies. By no means, by no means, yeah. So you travelled around India, uh, Remind me again, where else did you go? Did you go as far as Lived China? In, no, no, no. T uh, Thailand. Thailand, okay. And um, yeah, I lived in Belgium for a year and travelled about Europe a wee bit from there. It was a good central location. Yeah, yeah. Did you meet many other Scots when you were travelling? No, not really. I spent a lot of time, you know, in the culture of the place I was in. So I would go into schools and I've got family in Sweden. So I would go into schools in Sweden and Germany where I've got friends and... Um, I was just fascinated by different cultures and different environments and we, mm. the way children were treated differently in different countries yeah. as well was quite, was, was stark really from years ago. Yeah. Interesting you should raise that because uh, we were talking to Sue Palmer mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, Sue's very strong view is that children should start school at seven. There yes. you are, you see. Play is the way. Hope you saw that folks. Play is the way. <laughs> Uh, most of us ought to have our copy by now, but but yeah, and she makes up. And I, my recollection was that she may have said that Sweden, certainly Finland, is one of the countries where the children do start later. What's yeah. your take on that? Well, I mean, it's a, it's an absolute no-brainer. The international evidence is, you know, overwhelming that children who have opportunities to play freely, to take risks build their confidence, it's good for their well-being, and they're emotionally and mentally in a much better place to start doing formal learning when they're, when they're six and seven. And also the interesting studies that they've done, children in Britain who start to learn to read when they're four or five, um, when you compare them with children in Finland, by the time that Finnish children are 11, they're at the, they don't start learning formally to read until they're seven, but they're at the same level of reading as British children who've had, had at least two, if not three years more than them. But the difference is that the Finnish children are much more, um, they're they read voluntarily, they're interested in reading for pleasure, yeah. far more than British children are because it's something that they've been forced to do at too young an age. I mean, yeah. it just is a no-brainer that children should be playing until they're six or seven and learning through play. I mean, it's people that are still, unfortunately, people who think it's a bit of a frivolous exercise, but that's children's work. Children learn through, you know, all the skills, that, the life skills that you need to communicate, to negotiate, to learn to self-regulate, all these, to be curious, to be kind to develop empathy you can't teach these things these are things that children learn by being in the world and so yeah. those early years are the, the most precious time to do it yeah yeah i mean that that was sue made that point 
very eloquently as you have, uh, that that would be a smart thing to do. She also pointed out, because it's an obvious question, how come we ended up where we have? And the, the notion that it goes back to sort of industrial times when there was a, a push to get women into the workforce ASAP and to get their children uh, once they became of age, 14, 15, into the workplace ASAP again. Uh, I mean, just, you know, frankly, Victorian attitudes seem to be driving our educational system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Is we that- need definitely, rev- we need a revolution. Yeah, we need a revolution. And, and the fact that it's, you know, mostly um, countries that were Britain ruled uh, are the countries that start their children at four and five. So countries, yeah. Scandinavian countries, most European countries don't do it because they know it's not good for children. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I know we, we went uh, to the States oh, some time ago and the uh, first thing we discovered was that my son was in a class where almost all the children were two years older than him. I mean, and they were very different people. I mean, they were people. <laughs> he was still a child uh, because that's the way the, the, the educational system worked in Scotland. Uh, but there he was, they were sort of young adults. And I think he found that very difficult to adjust to. Um, but, uh, but at least that was my sense of it anyway. So you, you, you found yourself back in Edinburgh after this traveling. What, what did you decide to do when you got back to Edinburgh? I did a few things, the usual, worked to the nanny, worked in a children's home, worked in a pub, and then I went to Murray House to study community education, and that was that was it, that was my thing. Um, and I got a job in Highland Perthshire. The patch was amazing, from Dunkeld to Lerathel, Kinlochranach, and every, Georgetown, right up to Rannoch Station. It was the most amazing patch. Um, and I was only there for a year before we went travelling. And then I came back to, my mum had an accident. My mum was killed in a road accident, actually. And so we had to come back from our travels. And then I moved back to Edinburgh again. And um, I worked at an adult education project. And uh, it was for people who worked with children. And um, I wanted to do something that would show, we did loads of training courses. We had lots of really interesting arts workers, creative people coming and do sessions. And the children were amazing. And I thought, you know, there was a thing on Radio 4 the other day. It was a listening project and it was two older women talking. And they were saying to one another, you know, people think us oldies are just, we're either invisible or we're a nuisance. And I can remember having that conversation about children 30 years ago and, and saying to colleagues, look, let's do something that demonstrates what children can do rather yeah. than, they're, you know, they're a problem. Or if they're not a problem now, they're about to be a problem. And so, you know, to cut a long story short, we ran a, a, an eco-city project and we got children from Germany, Denmark, Norway, Scotland, children from Craig Miller and Nidri together. And they had to create this huge scale model of an environmentally friendly city of the future. And it had to meet the needs of everybody who lived in it. So it wasn't just a children's playground. And they did. They had a chocolate factory, of course. They had organic vegetable farms. They had a, an old people's home and they had a nursery down one side because they said, um, not all old, interesting, not all old people don't like children <laughs> and some of them might be missing their grandchildren so we thought it would be nice to have a place where they could watch children playing. Yeah. Um, the Scottish children, put, they had this new housing estate and I, was, I remember listening to this conversation between this, the kids from Craig Miller and Nidri and Norwegian children and the Scottish children put chimneys on top of all the houses and the Norwegian kids said, what are they? And the it, the Scottish kids kind of looked at them as if they were a bit 
backward and said, you know, a bit, a bit not very bright and said, um, well, they're chimneys. If you don't have chimneys, you can't heat your house. And the Norwegian children in English, you know, said to them, do you mean fossil fuels? Do you understand the damage that fossil fuels do to our environment? This was in 1992. And of course, the Scottish children had no idea, had no idea, but they were absolutely galvanized by this, wheeled all the chimneys off, but then had to think, so what are we, how are we going to heat our houses then? And they had solar power, they had, well, they had a volcano and instead of having realized that land was really expensive so instead of having burial grounds graveyards they decided that they would have a they would burn the bodies in the volcano because that would save money but it would also heat your house yeah <laughs> so i thought that was very enterprising <laughs> and then the other of course the big thing the reason for that story is that the, the in the middle of it they put a children's parliament because they said there needs to be a place where adults listen to children and take us seriously, not just about the things that adults think are important, but the things that children think are important too. And yeah. so Colin and I, my, my co-director and I said at that time, wouldn't it be amazing if we could if we could make this happen? And so we set about it. And what form does it take? Tell us about the Children's Parliament. We set it up in 1996 as a charity and uh, we have a board of trustees and basically our, our long-term aim is to support a culture change in Scotland so that children become much more part of our mainstream fabric of society. That they're not, you know, I, I would argue that children are still tolerated to a large extent in Scotland. That, um, you know, when I was going to these schools in Germany and Sweden, it was really noticeable that the relationships with their teachers were based on they were much more equal. The children felt much more comfortable asking questions and just yeah. having a conversation that was, wasn't mediated that they were responsible for. Yeah. And, um, you know, in Scotland, we've got a bit of an issue with hierarchy and power and control and the whole system's predicated on reward and punishment. And so in order to change our culture around children so that they become equal, citizens because they are citizens now you often hear people talking about children are citizens of the future well what are they now then so they're citizens now and um so what do we have to change and that's quite a challenge because we have this reward and punishment built into every aspect of our society was that necessary as part of that what i loosely call the victorian approach that that, that produced the start school at five finish at 14 15 was it, is this reward and punishment? Was that built into that process back then? Or did this happen at some other stage? Or did it happen earlier? In the Victorian I, th I, think it's, I think it's always been that that's what, how, what authoritarian societies, when you've got people in charge, that's how they make it work. That's, and it's through fear and it's through do as you're told or there will be repercussions. It's, I think it's a sign of... Um, a bit of a bit of fear. People not really trusting their citizens to uh, to be able to manage themselves and their behaviours and their actions, and I think that's what we see with children. Um, I think we 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 do too and we do for, but we need to be doing more with children. I think yeah. we were discussing with Sue, and and I think it was important at the time talking about fear at school, which seems to be to be a complete anathema. Why would you want to instill fear in children at any time, but even less when they're there to, to learn something? And how you fuse these two is a mystery to me, even though I went through exactly that process at school. Uh, we talked about uh, the use of the belt. Uh, and I was belted fairly regularly. That may have been because I was 
remiss in various ways. But we, we did, in fact, get a, a message from somebody who said, uh, look, uh, I, I was belted for what's that, 14 days on the, on the trot because of spelling mistakes. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, if, if that's the case, that's just awful. And it's hard to see anyone can possibly justify that. Uh, and, uh, you know, the whole notion that you can use fear as some sort of way of um, expediting education strikes me as bizarre. But, but here we are, you know, I mean. And, and, and I think we have to recognise that there's, there is lots of great practice in Scotland and there are lots of great teachers. And, and we work with many of them. And, you know, it's really wonderful what they do with children. But the bigger picture is about <clears throat> the systemic changes that we need to see. We do have a system that teaches compliance and, yeah. compl and politeness over yeah. critical thinking, analysis, yeah. um, questioning, curiosity. And if you look at, you know, if you look at speeches and papers from international business leaders and leading leaders in education, Andrea Schleicher, who's the head of education at PISA, everybody gets very worked up about the PISA studies. Um, he talks about how we need, to, they, they, all of these people talk about how we need to be shifting from our subject-based, filling children and young people with knowledge and information, testing them on it, and then launching them out yeah. into society when we haven't spent any time preparing them for 21st century working life. So, you know, they'll argue that we're, we're teaching children and young people to do things that robots can do better. And actually what we need, what they need to be learning is they need to be developing compassion and kindness and teamwork and good communication skills and being able to analyze and using their initiative. Well, that's not the basis of our education system at the moment. It, I'm not saying it doesn't happen because there are great teachers that try to do that, but mm. I think they're restrained within the expectations of yeah. our education system at the moment. So Andrea Schleicher says, you know, when somebody complains to me that their child hasn't, about the, the low empathy mark that their child have, has got, I'll be cheering. And this is the guy that's head of education at PISA, you know. So we need to be bringing these conversations into mainstream. So because I think, you know, there are lots of parents who yeah. worry that their children are falling behind, that they need to start school because they're ready for it. And they're, yeah. and it, it, it's this pressure on all of us all the time that we have to keep ahead of the curve, otherwise our children will lose out somehow. And yeah. we, just, we just have to really dismantle that. And we can only dismantle it if we bring everybody into the conversation, not just those working in education. I think that's a very good point. Uh, I, I want to ask you some questions about that. So here we are. We've got an educational system which doesn't appear to meet the needs of the children. And also, in some respects, uh, and I'm being gen generalising here, uh, fails to meet the needs of the parents as well, perhaps. So how do we change that? <laughs> well, that's a question, isn't it? I think that, as I said, I think we need to bring people within and out with education together for this conversation. And we need to think about the future and we need to involve children and young people. So um, I've been taking part in some sessions by the Goodison Group over the past three years. We're looking at schooling education 2030. And I had a couple of children, MC, members of the Children's Parliament, present to Parliament a couple of years ago. And they presented this hive option of schooling, which is basically education in the community. And it's not classrooms, there's different areas, it's buzzy, there's first name terms with the teachers, um, 
you've got hangout spaces, you can play a part in what you learn and how you learn it. You yeah. know, it was just much more egalitarian. And um, but that requires a big sh- that requires a shift in how we assess and how we inspect uh, in what employers are expecting. We have to bring all these people into the conversation. One of the most exciting things, of course, from our point of view, Children's Parliament and for others, is the fact that the Scottish Government ha- at the moment has got a bill going through Parliament to incorporate the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. So, I mean, for some, some people will think, oh, that sounds really technical and boring and legalistic, but actually it is the most exciting and amazing thing that has happened in Scotland ever for children or certainly the most important piece of legislation going through this parliament. You know, this, for the first time, we will have a set of minimum, minimum standards that we all have to measure ourselves against and below which we can't fall. For some people, you mentioned children's rights and they think, oh, that's all we need. Children have got far too many blooming rights as it is. Uh, some people worry that it will, we will, it will mean children will become overindulged or they will get what they want. And actually... There are things like the right to be safe, the right to be heard, the right to have a level of privacy, the right to see your friends, the right to have enough food, to live with your family. A lot of the the articles in the convention are about the rights of, of families to have what they need in order to support their children to thrive. And for the first time ever, if children's human rights are breached, they have legal redress. So this is huge. It is huge. And we don't want people to be thinking, oh, brilliant, you know, we're going to be marching children to the courts. Absolutely not. But what it is, is an opportunity for us to say, this is what children's human rights means. It means that we have to, you know, as one of the children said to us recently, it means that we have to be kind. It means that adults have to be kind to us. They've not to be too hard on us. And when we do something wrong, they've got to help us. I was in Grenada on holiday some years ago and there was some, a festival going on and I noticed that people had T-shirts and on the, it said, um, Child Health, Grenada's Wealth. And on the children's T-shirts, it said, Correct Me With Love. Now, that was a long time ago, and I still remember that really clearly. And I, and I think that implementing the, the UNCRC means that we can have conversations with adults like, you know, children tell us every day when we're talking to them that they really hate being shouted at in schools. They hate it. Even if it's not them personally who's being shouted at, it affects them. It makes them feel scared. It makes them feel uncomfortable. It stops them from learning. Yeah. You know, putting children in the corridor, telling children they can only go to the toilet. Imagine if somebody said to you, if you said to your boss, you know, I need to go to the toilet. And they said, why did you not go at your coffee break? And you had to explain in front of all your colleagues why you didn't go for a pee in your coffee break. I mean, it's utterly ridiculous, isn't it? That's what we do to children all the time. And so it doesn't inculcate a sense in children of of being responsible for themselves. They're... You know, the rely this this notion of reward and punishment. I was reading something the other day, in fact, Upstart shared it on Twitter, and it was about star charts and that, that whole notion of rewarding children for doing something because it pleases an adult. It takes away children's intrinsic motivation to do something because they want to do it, because they feel it's the right thing to do. And that's what develops compassion and empathy. And so um yeah, it's, uh, we've, there's lots to do, but we need to have a conversation that brings everybody in. We need to be willing and able and brave enough to have courageous conversations. I, I would agree with that 100%. The thing that slightly troubles me, and I'm sure it must trouble you, uh, before we talked, 
about you coming on the show as a guest. I had no idea that that legislation was coming before the Scottish Parliament. And I, it got me to thinking, I got, why don't I know that? I mean, because, you know, I take trouble. I, I read the, the public prints, I, you know, I, 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 I'm interested in what politicians are doing. I'm interested in politics. You would think somewhere along the way, right, that would have registered, but it hasn't. And I wonder how many other people are unaware that this is happening. And it's, and furthermore, uh, that it's such a milestone. Well, Why you is, know... I mean, we, we, we seem to have a communications problem here. It's not just the children, frankly. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, I share that frustration because we have real trouble getting any attention in the mainstream press. The National was the only paper that showed any interest in um, in writing something about a uh, year of childhood. And I thought it was a brilliant story. John Carnahan, who you may know, who was the co-founder of the Violence Reduction Unit in Scotland. He's our chief unfairty. I can tell you about unfairties uh, later. And um, he wrote about year of childhood and why it's important to be thinking about how do we support childhood as a place, the most important time in, in children's, in our lives. How do we support it? And we had a child write about it as well. And I didn't even get a reply from some of the papers. You know, they're not this this whole this whole the, this the value and the status of children across Scotland is really I would argue is really low. I don't think children are valued for their for being children. And you know, in the Western Isles where we worked for I worked for seven or eight years, um, we ran a children's parliament program there. The children I felt were much more equal. If there was an event, the children were there as equal participants. If it was a Kaylee, the children told a story, sang a song, did a dance, you know, they played in the band, they were just there as part of the crack. Whereas here, I think on the mainland and certainly in the city, and I just feel that children are quite often separated. They have a, they have their place. And actually, yeah. the quieter, the better. Let's just give them something and get them out of the way, and then we, we adults can get on with it. And yeah. I think there's something about the status of children and the people, and, and maybe newspaper people, media people think folk won't be very interested in it. And actually, we all, every single one of us needs to be interested in it if we want to build a society in a Scotland that is based on equality and... These are very good points. I think you might be experiencing that circular discussion where uh, the, the, the media is run by people who graduated from the very educational environment that's, that's, such, that's so deplorable. So they take with them those, those values because those are the values they learn. They think those are commonplace, uh, that people should be seen and not heard and you should sit up and shut up and uh, keep the noise down, all of that stuff. And if you've had that for sort of, you know, 15 years of your life as a very young person, it, some of that's bound to stick. I mean, you do have a mountain to climb. But let me just say this. Uh, several people have been in touch, and I, I want to read you this uh, comment. It's not quite a question, but it's a comment. I think you'll like it. Faye Kennedy is saying, if this pandemic has shown anything, it is that parents spending time with their children outdoors I think is great for both the children and the parents. So it seems to me, if I'm not uh, paraphrasing what Faye is saying, she's endorsing that point that children are outside playing, whereas if there hadn't been a pandemic, they would have been at school, perhaps. I don't know how old the children are, but I'm rather assuming that. So she seems to be endorsing what you're saying. Uh, Stephen Kelly is asking this question. 
Why is there not enough love and being part of society from kids in care? Kids get pulled from pillar to post and then abandoned. Um, yeah, actually love is in the UNCRC. In the preamble, it says that children should grow up in environments of love and understanding. So isn't that amazing that love is in, in an international treaty? It's fantastic. And it's going to be in Scots law soon. So let's get excited about that. But Stephen's right. Um, children in care, the, there is there's a huge amount of work being done through the, the care review, which has now moved on to the promise and issues around um, and children and young people with care experience have been centrally involved in that. That's been a really strong rights-based process. And, uh, and so I think we should feel reassured that whatever happens, whatever the next steps are, children or young people are going to be centrally involved in shaping what that looks like. Well, that's great. That's super. Um, that's good to know. Oh, yeah. uh, Stephen Kelly has added that he wasn't wanted by his mother. He's not ashamed to say it. And people should talk about things that happened to him. You know, I, I guess that's the point. Again, where's the space to do that? Yes. It's, it's all sort of, it gets, gets sort of closed in, really. And Ruth Hanrati has said, gosh, that was really important and it brings tears to my eyes. So um, people are feeling it, as it were. What seems to me to be missing, uh, and I'm saying this as a complete lay person here, um, is, is the, 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 the need for the institutions, however you define them, to respond. Now, the fact that this legislation is going through you could, see, you could say that's a very good thing, but is it happening in a, in a broader sense? I mean, the fact that this is happening, yet we're still saddled with this sort of starting school at five, it, it just seems to be an anomaly here. You've got the children's parliament. So you've got, you've got this legislation positive, you've got children's parliament positive, you've got the year of the child positive, but somehow we're still starting the kids at five. It doesn't square. You know, as a lay person, it doesn't fit. No, I know. Year of Childhood um, actually um, is, is trying to highlight some of this, but we're, we're really at the early days of this conversation. You know, the... the um, you said earlier, this is, you raised this 20 years ago. Well, I know that the, the UK ratified the UN Convention 1991. So, um, but the conversation, you know, this... this you, you remember getting the belt at school. I remember getting the belt at school, um, you know, I still go into schools and, and see practice that reflects the practice I had. In fact, you know, if, if a Victorian came to visit some schools in Scotland, they would a lot of it would be recognisable to them. We haven't actually changed things that much. I feel that things are changing. You know, you said education is deplorable. I wouldn't say it's deplorable. I think there's lots of fantastic practice and fantastic teachers. I think it's about harnessing that. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean education is deplorable because there are some fine people. My, my wife is one of them. She taught primary school. <laughs> you better watch it then, yeah. Absolutely. I'm in real trouble here if I don't correct it. <laughs> uh, not just with you and with other folks in education. And, of course, being married to a teacher, you, you get to know lots of other teachers. It's a very sort of, uh, it's that sort of environment. But uh, so uh, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm actually saying is deplorable that despite all the evidence, we still have kids starting school at five. When it seems to be, in the minds of many people, completely counterintuitive. That's what I was saying was deplorable. That's yeah. And also this hierarchy this, and this power and control thing that we have that's endemic in Scotland, it applies to teachers too. So, you know, I've certainly 
had conversations with teachers who love a rights-based approach. They totally see the transformation in children when children are given more responsibility. They Children learn to manage their own emotions. They learn compassion and empathy. But the, the leadership in the schools hasn't yet reached the point where they get it. And so they're being forced into that much more traditional model of power and control and hierarchy. So teachers, you know, teachers are also stuck in the paradigm of reward and punishment and hierarchy and control. So there has to be space made for them to have conversations that feel safe for them to take part in. But maybe I wasn't so wrong then. That is deplorable that that's not happening. Don't you think? Yeah, I think it's a pity that we are still stuck in this you know I think I think education needs to be um, influenced by people who are not embedded in education because you know you, many teachers go through school as you go through a school as a student and you go through education as a as a student teacher and then you go into school and that's your that's what you know yeah. and so when people come into education from having had different experiences then they often challenge some of the accepted norms. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, even things like using teachers' first names, some teachers do that and it can be quite uncomfortable for their colleagues. In fact, if you phone up some school secretaries and ask to speak to Tom, you, you get a flea in your ear quite often. Mr. McDonald isn't available at the moment, you know. So there's that there's that kind of thing where we, we we mix up politeness and respect and compliance and just equality. There's there's a lot in there, yeah. <laughs> a lot I mean, to unpack. Power relationships and uh, I mean, having spent many years in the business community, it, it speaks to some of the um, least effective management systems. Um, I hope I'm wrong here, but. Uh, here, Jim McIntyre is pointing out that the first time he was belting was in primary three. Yeah. I mean, really, come on. Mm. I mean, whoever thought that was appropriate? You know, that's just horrendous. You know, I mean, words fail me almost. Uh, so, you know, so here we have very enlightened people like yourself, Sue Palmer, many others, you know, bright, capable, able, the, the, there's a, a, a growing body of evidence that you know, starting school at five is the right thing to do. Listening to children, as you so eloquently put it, is appropriate. I, I still feel, I don't see enormous evidence of the system changing. I, I, I see people beginning to perhaps more, better appreciate the need for change, but I don't actually see the change. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I listen to the politicians talk, they don't use too much of your language. They talk about testing. Uh, you know, and I, I think there was a, a recent uh, discussion in the Scottish Parliament, and it seemed to be focused upon kids are not getting tested because of the pandemic. <laughs> I'm thinking, what, what is all this? You know, I mean, I'm sitting here listening to Sue Palmer and yourself, and I'm watching people <laughs> We don't seem to have heard any of this, frankly. Well, John Swinney, if you listen to John Swinney, uh, in, when he introduced the bill to incorporate the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, he was absolutely phenomenal, fantastic. And there's a genuine passion from Nicola Sturgeon and him to make this work. And I think incorporating the UNCRC actually gives us a wonderful opportunity to make this change or to begin to make this change because it validates a lot of the conversations that have been, people have felt 
up until now have been kind of a bit extra, almost like extracurricular, you yeah. know, talking about hierarchies and powers and the voice of the teacher, the voice of the child. They're all kind of things that are nice to get around to if we've got time. And actually, the, the in implementing UNCRC means that we are going to be required to take into account what children tell us. We're going mm -hmm. to be required to create environments where children don't feel humiliated, yeah. where we're not punishing them, where their dignity you know, is, is disrespected. We, we can't do that anymore. So how are we, what, are we, what are we going to do instead? You know, mm -hmm. Somebody gave an example of um, being worried about children's rights because they said they thought people might feel that it was about indulging children. And she gave an example of children running around a restaurant and nobody telling them to sit down. And, you know, clearly that's not acceptable. So if I had been in that restaurant, I would have been saying to the kids, excuse me, this is unacceptable. It's dangerous. She can't be running around here. Can you go and sit down, please? End of. You know, um, a child said, somebody said to me, I told my child he had to tidy his bedroom. And he said, I don't have to do what you tell me. My teacher says I've got rights. And I'm looking at this guy going, Really? In whose world would it be all right for a six-year-old to tell his dad he's not tied in his room because he's got rights? Let's get this into some kind of perspective, you know. Let's just let's just harness this. This this is about protecting children. It's about you know we, we go. I go around Scotland and I'll say to children, hands up, hands up if you know about children's human rights. But what rights have you got? And they'll you know they'll quite often say I've got the right to remain silent, you know, because I've watched too many CSIs. But they, they or they'll talk about the right not to be kidnapped or the right to have um, shelter. So they've learned about global rights. But what does that mean if you're seven and you go home and you're abused? So we have to, as a society, be much braver about having conversations with children that they have. A, adults don't have a right. I did this with nursery children one day. Got them sitting on the carpet, and I said to them, "Did you know that?" adults are not allowed to do whatever you want they want to children and there were like about 20 of them three and a half to five year old three to five year olds and they looked and I said we're not allowed to do whatever we want to children no adult is allowed to do whatever they want we've made promises and the government's made promises to keep children healthy and happy and safe and we know that not all children feel healthy happy and safe but the very very most important thing that you need to know is that if you ever feel really worried or scared, you need to find somebody that you trust and tell them you're worried and they'll yeah. try and help you. And this wee girl jumped up off the carpet and clenched her fists and she went, oh, wow. She totally got it. You know, and the feedback we got from the staff afterwards was amazing. But how many of us sit down with children and, sit and explain to them, Adults are not allowed to do whatever we want to children. And then when, when something like child abuse scandals come up, we're surprised. Well, yeah. why, would we, why would we be surprised? Who's told these children that adults are not allowed to do these things to them? You know? Good point. I mean, Ruth Hanratty wouldn't be surprised. She said she got the cane. She got, she got the cane from the headmaster in primary three. She got the cane. Yeah, I remember the, the belt. Yeah, getting the belt at school. Uh, so... I'm absolutely fascinated by uh, the poster behind you. Uh, what is unfairty? Who is unfairty? Well, I'm an unfairty. You get a badge if you're an unfairty. An unfairty is an adult who is willing to stand up for and alongside a child or children. And so we came up with the word because fear, obviously, is a Scottish word for being scared. But it's more, an unfairty is more than just not being scared. 
Because in Scotland, you have to actually pluck up the courage sometimes to talk about children's rights because you get a bit of a backlash. And taxi drivers used to be a bit of a barometer for me. You know, they used to say, what do you do? And if I wasn't, if I was feeling kind of, I thought I can't face this, I would say I'm a teacher and that would be fine. But sometimes I would say I work in children's human rights and they'd be like, absolutely brilliant. That's exactly what we need. And then and some of them are just curious. And actually, to be fair, more were more curious and positive than not. So unfairties are people that are willing. It doesn't mean that they have to be experts in children's rights or, you know, be willing to, you know, go out and put their Superman cape on every or red pants on every day. But they have to be an unfairty thinks about this, thinks yeah. about children's place in in society and so anybody watching this can be an unfairty. I was reading today, um, some of you will probably know um, the Scottish Community Alliance, Angus Hardy is the chief exec and he writes this brilliant piece every month, exactly a hundred words and I, I only ever open it if, I've, if I know I'm going to have time to read it properly and think about it and I didn't read his last one which was two weeks ago I think until today or a week ago until today and he talks about the pandemic and he talks about how at the beginning, he volunteered along with thousands of other people to help. And um, he never got a call because they were, they were just overwhelmed with requests for volunteers. And he says that, you know, what's clear is that children have disproportionately suffered physically, emotionally, you know, socially, educationally. And, um, and he referred to Amanda Gorman, the young poet who spoke at Biden's inauguration. And she, when she was speaking afterwards about how she's come to be who she is, she talks about that old adage about it takes a village to raise a child. And Angus is asking, is this our moment now to be unfairties, to, yeah. to, be, to be the village? You know, if we want a Scotland, an independent, strong country that's based on social justice, equality, kindness, compassion, um, we, every one of us needs to do something about this, not just teachers. I mean, how much more can teachers be expected to do, for goodness sake? But every single one of us, there was a nice thing going around social media and there was a postie that would do a wee dance every day, he came in to deliver the mail and the wee girl would be waiting for him in the window and she would dance back. You know, a smile. Um, we worked with kids in Trinent and we asked them, what do they like about the community? And it was the fact that it was friendly. And it wasn't about people going out of their way and doing extraordinary things. It was about being kind, getting a smile. My neighbour, my, my friend who lives up the road, um, there's a family that lives in the street that has a reputation and there are two boys in the family and they're not, I don't, they're not treated particularly well by the community, but she's always made an effort to say hello and just give them a wave, a kind word, always. She's always gone out of her way to make sure that she, they know that she's interested in them, she cares about them. And in the last snow, there was a knock on the door and it was these two wee boys. And they went, do you want us to clean your path, missus? And uh, she said, thanks very much. And she, she gave them a pound or something, which they didn't want, but she made them take it. They didn't no. go to anybody else's house. They didn't go yes. knock on anybody else's door. And you know, she hadn't, all she had done was like be a good neighbor. Yeah. But it meant something to those boys. They recognized something in her that they, re they didn't see in their neighbors. Yeah. So that's been an unfairty. You know, it's been willing to just think to about, make, yeah, make an effort. Yeah. So if there's people watching and listening tonight and they think, unfairty, I wouldn't mind having an unfairty badge. How do they get an unfairty badge like you have? They go on our website childrensparliament.org.uk and um, click on unfairties and it gives you very very simple instructions and, yeah. and this year we're going to we're going to 
we've got some funding to develop an Unfearty map. So by the end of the year, we'll have a digital online map of Scotland with thousands, hopefully, of images of Unfearties. And you'll be able to click and see where all the different Unfearties are and why they're Unfearties and connect with people if they want to be connected with. There you are, folks. If you want to play your part in changing attitudes towards children, one of the easiest ways to start would be to wear a badge that says Unfearty. That would be wonderful. That would be fantastic. Go to, go to the website and you'll get your badge. Uh, obviously, the post isn't necessarily running as easily as it always did, but you'll get, I assume you, you put your name down there, you'll get your badge. Absolutely. You see lots of people walking about with Unfearty badges. Wouldn't it be great? I'm certainly going to order up mine. So, good. Uh, good. Brilliant. Uh, I, I just two quick comments. Uh, you mentioned kids running about restaurants. I mean, to a certain extent, that's a bit cultural because you and I have traveled a bit and you know that in certain cultures, children are vastly encouraged to be in restaurants at all times of the day and night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And at night time, they tend to run about, you know, when other people are eating. But nobody, I mean, it, there are some cultures which are incredibly children friendly. It's just a fact. Mm -hmm. People just love children around. They don't care who the children belong to. <laughs> yes. It's not important to them. They're just children, and they should be indulged. And that's what that's, and that's a, a strong cultural imperative. I think I, even if you set out to try and extinguish it, I don't think you'd be the slightest bit successful because people just feel that way and just deepen their souls. You know. So, uh, the children's parliament. Uh, we haven't got much time left, but I, how is it funded? I mean, I, I, do, do, are you funded by the government or is that a charity? Uh, how does that yeah. work? With charity, we get about 50% of our funding from Scottish Government and the other 50% we raise ourselves through commissions, consultations, projects, fundraising through to charitable trusts. So if somebody wanted to send you some money, that, that would be straightforward, oh, would it? That, yeah, it'd be very straightforward and very welcome, yeah. I mean, this is a difficult area of work. You know, people... It, people want people will fund work with children where it's about meeting their welfare needs. Sure. So you know we're we're a really strong, strongly motivated country when it comes to making sure children are fed, for example, or have clean clothes. And teachers do an awful lot of that as well. That's that completely goes unnoticed. But actually, what we're working on is is trying to encourage children to have more of a place in society and be more just be more proactive, more democratic. That's much more difficult to get funded because people yeah. are fear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so uh, and, and you, we're talking about the, the year of childhood. Is that part of, excuse my ignorance, is that part of the, your work in this children's parliament? Or yeah. is that alongside it? No, we are hosting it. We're hosting year of childhood because this is our 25th birthday year and we wanted to do something that would just highlight good practice across Scotland. So not just children's parliaments, but lots of good practice from colleagues and partner organisations across Scotland. And it's really, um, it's about amplifying a rights-based approach. What does it mean to, to operate a rights-based approach? So we're, at the moment, we're gathering stories of childhood. So any, anybody who's, who's watching this and taking part in this, who would like to share a story with us about childhood and, and their childhood what happened in their childhood that has led them to be the person they are today? 
So what were the we know, <clears throat> we know that lots of people hadn't didn't have great childhoods, yeah. but what what who were the people that stand out as having helped, supported, guided? What did they do, and how did that how has that influenced the person that you are today? And we're we're collating these stories and we're going to make a book later in the year to celebrate our birthday. So stories of childhood around five hundred words roughly would be would be really well received. And they can send those on the website. They can. Yep. 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 Yeah. Okay, terrific. Well, there you are, folks. Uh, I appreciate that so many of you have uh, written in and called in tonight. And we thank you for sharing your, your experiences with us. I know some of those experiences have been really hard, uh, but it, it's like all the more credit to you for sharing, I have to say. And here's another way that you can share it. You can write to uh, the Children's Parliament uh, and, and share your experiences with them and perhaps focus on the people who helped you uh, along the way, uh, because all of us tend to sort of respond to kindness and uh, sometimes that just sticks out and you, you maybe want to recognise those folks and there should be an opportunity uh, to do that. By the way, Fiona from Glasgow uh, says, thanks to Cathy, a wise and wonderful woman. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you, Fiona. <laughs> So uh, 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 it's good to know that uh, what you're saying uh, it resonates with people, and it clearly does, you know, because we've had just as many comments tonight as we normally have when we're discussing something which is terribly, terribly topical. So people clearly, it's something they obviously feel uh, is important. So I, I mean, I would wish you every success, and I think it's, a, I think it's a, a great thing you're doing. And I hope you continue to get the support that you need to do it because it seems to be terribly important. Thank so, but because, and also because this is an Indie Live uh, show, uh, tell us what your vision is for, for Scotland looking five years ahead, Cathy. Oh, a strong, independent country in the EU that's based on social justice, equality with, with children at its heart, with a, you know, um, in fact, it was Sue Palmer who told me that a few years ago she was in Finland and had um, had spoken to a minister about how come fin Finland is in such a wonderful place with its with everything, you know, every every measure of everything, Finland comes up near the top. And he said, you know, years ago, was it the 70s or 80s, we realised that Finland was in a pretty bad way. And we knew that if we wanted to change things substantially, we had to take care of our little people. And that's yeah. what they did. They invested in children, and that's now reaping benefits for the whole of the whole country. These children are now adults. They recognise that what what they received in their childhood has made them who they are today. And of course, you know, a child who's never known respect—how do you know what that is to then respect other people? So, I would like children. I would like Scotland as a country to recognise that children and young people have a huge amount to offer in helping to shape and influence. The, yeah. the kind of country they've got a really strong sense of social justice and I would love them to be able to to use that to support the development of of an independent Scotland. What do you think the catalyst was in Finland back then? Was there one incident or was it a, a combination of factors? In I mean, Finland? Yeah what prompted them to say right the, the old ways are just gone like we're not using those anymore we're focusing on this different approach. Well, as far as I understand it, they were in a mess. And, you know, when you're in a mess, you need to think creatively. You need to think out of the box. And you need to be a bit brave. 
And I think that, you know, the, the Scandinavian countries have progressed so much more quickly than us in terms of equality and social justice in, in many respects. But I think we're actually at a really good point now to be thinking about how we want to manage that because it's quite difficult to go from Victorian to laissez-faire. You have to really, you have to work out what that means, you know. So because it's not about children just being able to do whatever they want. You know, somebody said to a colleague the other day, "But what will you do if the children just say they want ice cream for breakfast every day?" You know, and say, "Well, children are not going to say that because they're not stupid." Do you know? <laughs> so, so we have to help adults understand that this is serious. This is real. It's yeah. possible. There are people that can support us to do it. We're all in this together. Let's let's take a brave pill and let's work together to work out how to do it together. And if we do that and if we trust each other, I think we can make pretty quick progress. Yeah. Well, you know, there's an argument that says with independence, you've got a clean slate and you can really focus on uh, the issues and, and deal with them uh, without being sort of dragged away onto some other agenda set by someone else. It would be great to feel that perhaps that would be the case, and it would be taken as a real uh, opportunity to step up and get, address many of these issues. Because I, I, I'm still slightly concerned about the institutionalisation of this five-year-old start at school. I don't see that changing. I don't see any prospect of that changing, despite talking to you and to Sue and to others. Um, but it seems to me that it would be a very useful uh, step forward. Would you agree? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. George Aitken has said, this has been a most interesting night. Oh, great. Do you know, I'm used to people glazing over. In fact, t twice civil servants have actually fallen asleep in meetings oh, with me. So great. that's wonderful feedback. Yeah. I, <laughs> I know it's to... hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Ruth has come back and said, thanks, John. And thanks, Cathy. Very important topic. And this is my first introduction of what is happening in Scotland. I hope I can support you when I return to my homeland. So I've no idea where Ruth is right now, but you've, yeah. you've struck a chord with her and with many others. Well done. Thank you, Cathy. Yeah. Our time is almost up. I just want to thank everyone for tuning in tonight. Uh, a big thank you to, obviously, to Cathy. And just to say to you all that we have a formidable list of guests coming up in future shows. Look out next Wednesday, and we have Professor Chris Whitley. Now, Chris is a terribly interesting guy. He was on the, uh, I think it'd be fair to say, on the no side in the 2014 referendum. It'll be good to talk to him and uh, learn from him uh, what, what his position is then and now and uh, perhaps uh, sometime to come. How have things changed for, for him and for others perhaps? Oh, and by the way, look out for my constitution column, please, in the Sunday National at the weekend. I haven't quite decided what we're going to do. I might go back and look at uh, the Union uh, Policy Implementation Committee, but maybe all the jokes have been done by then. In that case, I'll, I'll choose something else. And very importantly, please, support Indie Live. There's a load of shows in addition to the TNT show, uh, which clearly many of you have really enjoyed tonight, thanks to Cathy. There's other shows on this channel. Uh, have a look at the What's On Guide. You'll find it at www.whatsonguide.com. Scott. You'll see loads of shows there. Keep your fill of, take your fill of those because remember, if you don't like the media, become the media. This, this is your opportunity. And all I can say now is please, thank you, Cathy. Thank you all for watching. Have a very good night. 
And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. Good night all. Take care.